Hey everyone, as we head into the holidays here, I'm going to try to get a couple episodes out and we'll come out of the other end of the holidays, hopefully with a couple more episodes fairly quickly. So no major announcements other than just a reminder, if you are not already subscribed to the newsletter, please do sign up. I share news about what's happening with the podcast, upcoming guests, industry news, interesting articles I'm reading, event invitations, and a whole lot more. So check it out. It's www.impactinvesting.how. That's H-O-W. And I hope to uh, see you all signed up. And with that, let's get on to this episode. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Churches across the globe are in crisis. The arrival of COVID-19 served to dramatically accelerate a decades-long systemic decline in church attendance as the expectations and preferences of congregants have changed across the generations. Falling church attendance has meant declining revenue and mounting financial pressure to maintain expensive real estate and buildings that sit increasingly idle. Ultimately, many churches may face closure and even demolition. In Canada, it is estimated that nearly one in three churches are on track to close in the next decade. And while that may not bother a lot of people since we live in an increasingly secular society, as today's guest will articulate, churches represent an incredibly important part of our social infrastructure and one that a vast number of social programs rely upon. In Toronto alone, over 100 nonprofit organizations, many of which are secular, operate from church buildings or land. Losing these churches, which are often rented out at below market rates to nonprofits, would be catastrophic for the many secular social purpose organizations and the vulnerable communities they serve. Enter today's guest, Graham Singh, founder and CEO of Trinity Centers Foundation, who joins us today to talk about his innovative work using impact investing to finance the transformation of idle church properties into thriving places of sustainable community impact. Over the past 15 years, Graham has led four historic building and community renewal projects in the United Kingdom and Canada. Graham is an ordained minister in the Anglican Church and has a long line of academic credentials that include a master's from the London School of Economics, Bachelor of Ministry from the University of Cambridge, and a BA in Political Science from Huron University. During this episode, Graham and I discuss the crisis that the church in Canada is facing, the role churches play as important social infrastructure, the role of blended finance in solving the financial challenges the church face, and the types of investors and organizations that are suitable partners in Graham's work. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end where we discuss the importance of the church in placemaking, which is the process of co-creating quality places that people want to live, work, play, and learn in. With that, let's get on to the podcast. Graham, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, David. Great to be with you today. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. I uh, first stumbled across your work probably, oh, at least a couple of years ago. I think there was an article in the paper around some of the work you're doing with uh, with churches and you know converting those properties into places that 
you know, deliver uh, social impact. And uh, so this is a nice, um, I'm glad we're finally coming around to, to having this conversation. Yeah, we, were, we worked out a very helpful media strategy, which is that when we filled the churches with circus companies, all of the reporters turned up. <laughs> they they, they, they love the idea of circus companies. So we've had incredible press based on our, our, our connection to the circus industry here in Montreal. Of course, high ceilings, churches, people kind of get the message pretty quickly that, hey, there's, there's, an, there's an exciting opportunity here. Did you, was that, was that literally intentional to make that one of the first kind of use cases for the, the space that it, or, it or was, was it just a happy accident? <laughs> <laughs> it was a really happy connection of oh, multiple okay. streams. They're, they had actually set up one, the, the circus company I'm referring to, they had actually created a circus nonprofit called Cirque Le Monastère, the monastery circus. And they had a dream of running circus in the big old empty churches of Quebec. So their dream preceded ours. And when we met up with them and said, well, we have a dream to just get loads of those buildings used for community purposes. And yours is one amongst many purposes. You know, let's, this is a match made in heaven. And they, I got to say the circus industry, we have 10,000 employees of Cirque du Soleil here in Montreal, where I'm based. And they are, we have so much to learn from those folks. So good at hospitality. Mm. And it's, I mean, when we get into the, the real vision of a community hub, it's seeing those creative gifts coming together in a space in a way that creates impact in so many, many levels. So yeah, it's, I don't know who organized that. Was it uh, divine intervention mm -hmm. or, or chance? You, you know, you have to decide for yourself. That's so cool. So I'd love for you to just you know, introduce yourself and tell everybody what you're passionate about and what you're working on. Yeah, well, thanks so much. And, you know, if, if people think of me as the guy who puts circus companies in churches and, and they, they don't get anything more than that, and maybe they ask the question, how are we going to fund that? Uh, you know, you would get to the answer pretty quickly. We, we founded, we created a foundation called the Trinity Centers Foundation. And we, we kind of said, if a whole bunch of lawyers and accountants looked at the problem of what the hell are we going to do with all these closed churches? You, you get something like what we're doing. And in a sense, what I've been doing is working around that area for, for a long time. As a, a pastor, as a, a priest in the Anglican Church, we have thousands of these buildings in just in Canada and tens of thousands around the world. And that's been an important part of my, uh, my life. I grew up in uh, just west of Toronto, uh, sang in a choir, loved that part of church, but wasn't particularly involved in my faith until later in life. And when I did get involved, I had by that time done a couple of university degrees that just finished a, a second one at the London School of Economics in the UK. I was working in a big advertising agency. Uh, I, I had a dream, actually, it was one of your one of your guests had a similar dream, I think, in the advertising industry, I recall. Uh, in my case, I had a dream of the 30 best PowerPoint slides I had ever designed. And I realized if I stay working in advertising, I'm, I'm going to end up doing versions of those same 30 slides for the rest of my <laughs> life. And, and they were great slides. And I really enjoyed that industry. But I realized that there was something else calling me. And that ended up connecting to in, in the denomination we were part of, church denomination, called the Church of England, which is the founding organization of the Anglican Church. They'd actually started a thing called the Closed Churches Team. And uh, it was around that time I met my wife, Celine, who's from France. We, had, we got married. We had two of our kids in England. And I was ordained. I, I went back, did a third degree in theology and uh, Cambridge, was ordained as a, as, a, as, a, as a priest. And we began working in this, this closed churches team, this what are we going to do with all these buildings? And that's kind of what I've been doing for the last 20 years. And so that team, when did that team start? 
So it started actually around that time. It was around 20 years ago. And the first part of the team was a technical part within the denomination. The second part was a, a team of local leaders who were trained specifically to go into churches. And I was actually in the first founding cohort Uh, of that group. And that group was investigating what to do with the church spaces like this. We can, we're going to unpack this a little bit further, but there's you, I think you've referred to it on the Trinity Centers Foundation website as a, as a crisis in the, in the church. We can unpack that, but this has been sort of acknowledged and there's been folks working on this problem for two decades. Yeah. Yeah, we can we can go all the way back. I mean, an interesting place to go back to, and it may sound like a very far journey back, but as we're you know thinking about so much about truth and reconciliation, and thinking about the colonizing instinct that's all over our continent, European Reformation of 500 years ago was really an awakening to a number of power struggles with the Roman Catholic Church: property struggles, the control of cities. And so for theological and ethical and legal and moral religious reasons, the church began to separate from its Roman Catholic roots into what we call the Reformed denominations, the Protestant denominations. Mm-hmm. And that, that system basically then looked at power and religion you know, in a different way. But let's keep in mind, from an investment point of view, there's property acquisition going on all the time. There's urban planning and development. The feudal system ends you know, you begin to see nation states, private property held in different ways, and all of this gets exported to North America. And if you can't get along with a, you know, a particular type of Dutch reformed church in Amsterdam, well, don't worry, you can just go to the new world and you can all have your own hundred acre plot. (laughs) You don't have to get along. So the North American expression of church breakdown is something that had this, has had this property and urbanistic impact where we, we have a worse case in my view, of the European Reformation in North America. And we're dealing with that. So yeah, it goes back. And, and by the end of the Second World War, of course, people stop being part of churches out of obligation, right? Their grandmothers, their great-grandmothers are still doing that. But the boomers and their kids and the millennials, these people, of course, are not part of a church out of obligation. And so you're left with this property problem, like, what the hell are we going to do? None of these people want to go to church, if they do go to church, they're not actually interested in the buildings. They'd rather meet in a cinema. Yeah, this this problem is uh, there's there's deep history to it. And then enter Corona COVID nineteen in two thousand and twenty, and that only escalates through the roof, right? This phenomenon of <laughs> that's not right to meet and not being able to meet in physical yeah, and central locations. Absolutely, and and as we you know as we think about social purpose real estate and investing in. The, the places in our urban contexts, it doesn't, again, it doesn't take long for somebody to realize boomers loved, some of them still love suburbs, right? Hipsters hate suburbs. They want to be in the inner city. So you have this abandoning of a lot of inner city urban real estate through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then this retaking of the urban areas. Uh, and of course, faith communities followed that pattern. But the idea of schools and cinemas Uh, Schools and cinemas did very badly as gathering places through COVID, right? These funny old church buildings did manage to kind of keep going. Mm. They, you know, most jurisdictions allowed those to happen. And so you're really mixed up now where you Mm. say, even if we like the church, which some do and some don't, does the church need any of these buildings? Not sure. 
and more importantly, do they need do do they need to own exclusively own those buildings? I guess is one of the questions you're tackling. Is that fair? It, exactly. And then, of course, the part B to my rhetorical question is: Does anybody need these buildings? And the answer to that is, hell yes. Yeah. You know, a lot of people need Resounding, these spaces. Yeah. Resounding yes. You cannot run a charity that meets vulnerable people on the 17th floor of an office tower. Right, you can run a charity that's doing fundraising for really wealthy people. They'll they'll hit seventeen and come to the top of the elevator, but we need those street level spaces. And then the question, exactly as you asked, David, is if they wanted to come in and use those spaces, could they do that if the church still owned them? And sometimes the answer, particularly with indigenous groups, a lot of other churches that feel very harmed by the church, the answer is we could use the building as long as you, the church, don't own it. <laughs> maybe you could be along for the ride. And that creates a governance question, which we're very keen on addressing. That's a point that, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I might not have understood or appreciated. And I think maybe you know, collectively you know, as, as a society, a lot of, you know, a lot of folks like me anyway, white settlers wouldn't have appreciated, but this, the, the power dynamic of, Oh, I'm going to come in, you know, borrow some space in the place that you own that power, power dynamic, especially with the, the trauma for certain groups that's a direct result of you know the church would of course make it really really difficult for you to operate and feel comfortable safe at peace and and you know not distracted by so yeah it's a really it's a powerful nuance that i think unless you're either from those communities or working closely with them you you'd be likely to miss i'd be likely to miss I think that's such a beautiful observation. And, you know, as we look at the justice lenses that in impact investing, you know, are so important to apply, you go across the board, look at the LGBTQ lens, and you realize there's harm from religious organizations. An indigenous lens, there's harm. A black lens, there's harm. The harm from the black lens with churches, though, is, is more subtle. It doesn't have to do with, hey, we don't, we're not part of that religion. Many black North American people are quite committed Christians. But in terms of the property wealth that those churches control, what if we call them, they're often called black majority churches, they're often in poor, poor areas of town. The build quality is lower. The overall property valuation is lower. So you just look at those three big lenses that any impact investment would have, not have to, would want to meet and be, be seeing very strong impact through those lenses, well, we have a problem with church governance. So yeah, this comes up a lot. And actually one of the beautiful conversations we hosted, uh, we've hosted a lot of conversations throughout the, the couple of years history now of the foundation, but was with the Philanthropic Foundations of Canada, Jean-Marc Manguin, who leads that group. And he spoke very clearly to the bishops and said, our members, meaning the large granting foundations in Canada, they have lost all trust with the church. And here are the reasons why. And this is why, unless you come up with a new governance structure, we're not interested in helping you with this problem. They'll also say things like, actually, before impact investment was cool, and even before we called it philanthropy, the wealthy families of Canada, of course, they built those big old churches. <laughs> mm -hmm. The names of their great, uh, great, great ancestors are in the, the founding cornerstones. You know, we talk about the colonizing instinct. Well, they, they built the big companies, the blue chip companies of today, and they built those churches. So... Everybody's aware that that governance issue around that property issue is a big one. And I'll tell you one other example. You know, in if you go to the government in Alberta, which we've done, and you talk about this, there's no problem talking about churches and social impact. Try doing that in Quebec, where after uh, First Nations peoples, particularly those who've been victims of the residential school system, 
the next biggest group that would see themselves as having been harmed by the church are Quebecers, right? The quiet revolution against the Anglophone culture, against any foreign power in, in, influencing Quebec and against the church, right? And so you go to Ottawa and you find so much of Ottawa is run by Quebecers in such a beautiful way because of course <laughs> there aren't that many people who can work en anglais en français. And you realize Quebec culture has a lot to say about this as well. So yeah, you know, Look, as a paradigm or as a as a an archetype of cultural issues which influence influence impact investing, this is a good example of like, hey, this is complicated. We're going to have to work out how those lenses, those justice lenses, interplay around the locus of investment that we'd all like to point to. You started and you gave us a bit of your a quick um, summary yeah. of your background. I'd love to just like do a slower pass over that or yeah, a more detailed pass. You have a very very interesting background and the work that you're doing is also very interesting. And so understanding a little bit about, you know, kind of how you started to see the problems that you're seeing and wanting to tackle them, I think it's just, you know, I'd love to unpack that a little bit further. Yeah. So you mentioned you, you kind of grew up and raised in, in, in West Toronto, feel free to just sort of unpack some of that history a little bit further. Yeah. You can start wherever you want. You don't have to start childhood if you don't want to, but yeah, no, 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 no. I had a great <laughs> childhood. And, and actually I'll, I'll say this in, in, in slight jest, you know, I, I'm, I'm half Indian, but from British Guyana, that's my father's roots. And then the other half is Scottish. My mother was born in England actually, and then came over. So you know, at the time, that was a pretty exotic mix. Mm -hmm. Sure. <laughs> now, of course, a kind of half Indian, half Scottish guy, you don't even bat an eyelid. That's such a typical Canadian background to have. But wonderful parents, a medical family, all pretty much everybody in my parents, grandparents, you know, a lot of medical people. And a lot of them uh, involved in, in community leadership. You know, my grandmother founded the first school for mentally uh, disabled kids. They're mostly Down syndrome boys. In Guelph, it later became an industrial group that had those same boys placed as as workers in factories. And uh, she was a firebrand, my grandmother. And she'd smoke a pack a day of cigarettes. She'd pile back a couple of pints of beer before Sunday roast. And she'd, you know, she'd tear a strip off anybody who got in her way kind of thing. And that's some amazing people like that who've inspired me and a lot of mentors around my family friends. So I, I, mean, I had a strong, beautiful childhood that I'm so thankful for. And... Um, Certainly. And again, I've heard that from many of your guests, David, you know, the importance of that, those kind of family values of saying, it's not about you. It, it, it is about trying to give back. And, and we see that all over, don't we? The impact investing sector, that kind of family background. So yeah. And then the London School of Economics, what I studied there was actually decolonization. I studied uh, European integration, which of course is the aftermath of the Second World War and the peacemaking endeavors that became the European Union. And I studied decolonization in my father's country, in British Guyana, where there was a coup led by the CIA and the British Intelligence Services. And I was the fourth person in the world to study the declassified documents on that file. Wow. So it was, when I was talking about decolonization, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> if you ask me, like, what job did you think you were going to do having studied that? I, I had absolutely no idea. What, and what got you interested <laughs> in that specifically, though? Well, I have, you know, we all have grandparents. I had one of my grandparents I had never met. And he had actually, he died before I was born. And he had actually become, through that process of decolonization, he had become minister of justice. He was a lawyer. And I was fascinated by his life. So, you know, I used my master's thesis at the LSE to, to study my grandfather, basically. And that was, that, was, that was a real privilege. So you come out of, this is at London School of Economics, you come out of that yeah. program? Yeah, that was an amazing, uh, it still is such an amazing school. And, and, and that really, the, the London School of Economics has a hundred year view of history from the end of the First World War 
to the present day. And that's very strong throughout all the courses. And I, I, you know, we just talked a little bit about Reformation history. I think history at this time, as we look at impact, is so important. It's, it's certainly formed me. And yeah, the journey through into the church, then I, I, I don't think I've ever been normal minister, <laughs> if we want to call it that. Mm-hmm. I've always been interested in the societal impact of the church. And I've really appreciated those who are more traditional ministers. Um, but the church has always made a place for me, I would say, to ask those questions. And we've had the privilege, my, my wife and I have leading four churches, in fact, over this 20-year period. And it was at the end of the the third church, which was in Guelph, Ontario, uh, where I, again, where I grew up. I'd come back to the UK by that point. We'd been 14 years in total in the UK. It was after that point I realized, how are we going to do this in Canada? What, what, you know, what, what levers need to happen or need to move to do this. And I began to find David, a lot of people who um, were people of faith. And I don't know if you've heard this phrase, but a lot of Canadians would describe themselves as privately faithful. Mm -hmm. So not religiously associated, but Mm -hmm. privately faithful. And of those people, I think there are things enormous deep faith across Canada about this kind of social change. And so over the past few years, it's been, you know, the personal journey of being involved in the local community. And, you know, I'm talking the nuts and bolts side of, you know, being a local community activist, seeing the spaces that we have shared out as much as we possibly can. You have to fight battles locally too, right? And as I, I'm, as you're aware, and we'll probably talk a little bit about it, I'm starting this new course at Oxford on impact finance innovation, which has kind of come out of our work with the foundation. And one of the things that really attracted me to this course is the idea that traditional finance is not working to fit into the impact investment you know, categories that we're all calling for. And one of the reasons it's not working is it's not actually answering the financial or the capital needs of those folks who are on the ground. And I'd say personally, um, spending 20 years being one of those folks on the ground, you know, in an urban context, I've learned a lot. And I don't want to say, you know, you, you get tough feet, you get hard feet, but you, you, you do kind of get some calluses, I think. You don't want to be a callous person. But there are some things where you say, hey, you know what? We've known that A, B, and C is not working, <laughs> hasn't been working for a long, long time. And if you add D to it, it's still not going to work. So my, my view, my lenses of impact finance are very much focused on what is actually going to work. Issues like homelessness and addiction, it's very easy to become bombastic about them and realize they are multifaceted, but there are some really hard decisions and capital allocation is a huge part of that. So I, I suppose you can, you know, I guess you start to see a picture of how that local experience has led me to a place where I'm asking the question, what are we going to do with the $45 billion worth of land wealth of the church? What are we going to do with the trillions of assets that are trying to find an impact investing home? And the folks who clearly see a need to create social impact instruments that see what we're all dreaming of. So it's, it's, I, I want to say like one of the most beautiful times of my life. We also have three young kids. They're ages uh, five, nine, and 12, and they are such a joy. My wife, Celine's a graphic designer. And so, you know, we see this, we're not off in any ivory tower. We're, we're here in an urban context in Montreal and just loving 
you know, I really believe we are we are living at one of the most exciting times one could ever be alive in. It's certainly one of the most interesting, <laughs> fast changing, tenuous. <laughs> There's a lot of words I could use to describe it, but exciting is is probably one of them. It's been amazing to listen to the podcast, and you know, I I found that the podcast it's a couple of years ago now from with the the, the episode you did with Stephen Huddert from the McConnell Foundation. Stephen's retired from McConnell now, but he's kind of like this. He's like this kind of friendly spirit of social impact, mm-hmm. traveling around Canada, kind of connecting people. And you get this message out of the dark from Stephen saying, you should meet with so-and-so. And of course, you just follow along. And you know, I, I think there are people like that. Ronald Cohen, I was so inspired by Sir Ronald Cohen. You know, beautiful to think of the depth of things that have been going on. John uh, John Lukomnik, I, I learned a lot from him. And I, mm-hmm. I really thank you, David, because for folks like me who come from the let's call it the impact creation side or the impact enabling side, we need to understand when we talk about how does traditional finance work. And I think John McComnick, you know, his critique of modern portfolio theory that you actually recommended that I check in on was incredibly helpful. Yeah. yeah. So, well, thank, thank you for the, the kind words. I mean, I, it's, I won't take them. You know, I think they're more for the guests because they are very, I just try to get out of their way and let them talk and direct the conversation like I'm going to do here, just try to yeah. stay out of the way and try to avoid the urge I have to talk too much, which is I'm not, everyone knows I, I like the sound of my own voice. So, but yeah, I, I, but I agree with you though. And I, I do try to kind of, that's what, that's one of the reasons I was so excited about John LeComnet coming on because it, you know, it, it, I risked the, Hey, we're going to get to in the weeds into financial theory. But I think if, if, and if people listen to that episode and don't sort of grasp all of it or take away every detail, that's fine. But if they leave with a slightly better appreciation for what is the lens through which traditional investors are approaching these capital allocation decisions and where are their maybe weaknesses in some of the way that they're looking at, where are the like flaws in their argument, I think that's very helpful to be able to speak to them on terms that they will appreciate, respect, that will address the way that they're tackling the problem rather than the traditional lens where I think when we come from the impact perspective is, yeah, but the moral imperative and the social impact, and they're saying, I know, but that's irrelevant to me. So if you can kind of speak to them on their own terms and address you know the merits of their argument, I think you're going to have a lot more possibility to get some movement in how they look at these uh, issues. That was absolutely the, the impact of John, you know, the episode with, with John Lukomnik for me and combine also the episode with um, Keith Ippel from Spring, you know, of really, I mean, he's somebody who I think really does connect the traditional finance and the impact creators on the ground. And I mean, I love thinking about things like, you know, hey, ESG, ESG, amazing. ESG for many traditional fund managers means calling up a number of indices, very good, well put together, well researched indices. You know, look at Sir Ronald Cohen and what he was talking about with Harvard and the pricing of uh, environmental harm, impact weighted accounts. You know, these things are incredible when you're building a portfolio of publicly traded assets, publicly traded securities, other traditional financial products, and you're weighting them based on their ESG impact. It's amazing. Yeah. It's, it has nothing to do with direct investment into local social impact. You know, we'd like to build a hundred new homeless shelters and actually make them work, or we'd like to solve homelessness, for instance. Or do, do you know what I mean? Those kinds of questions. You go back to the UN SDGs. Well, we want to end hunger. Well, okay, we're not going to achieve that by tweaking how Coca Cola runs its business. Right. 
and uses a different type of bottle. So ESG of that kind has absolutely nothing to do with the kinds of things we're doing yeah. at the ground level. And so it just helped me understand some of those things. I mean, one of them, and you and I were talking about this, the, one of the concepts that I think we, we would really like to share from our perspective of looking at the land wealth of the church is this broader category uh, of social purpose real estate. Uh, again, very easy to understand, right? Schools, hospitals, community hubs, churches, um, community centers, theaters. These are all buildings and places, often they're heritage places that have a heritage architecture to them. They're often part of the placemaking of a city. And you would look at them and you'd say, well, who, if you say who owns that, who owns a hospital, who owns a school, you say, well, we all do. You say, well, technically it's a school board. It's under license from a department of education. And, but it's social. We, we own it, right? We built it. And that kind of, I really believe that social purpose real estate is, is a locus of investment for us because lo and behold, there's some collateral to hold on to. <laughs> and so if you're building a traditional investment vehicle, you're thinking, okay, I like what these guys are doing. There's some social impact here. There's environmental impact. So what happens if they don't pay us back? We're going to take their charity. Well, that's not very compelling. Well, we could take the asset that we could take this piece of property that's harder Right, And of course, with heritage buildings, nobody wants to repossess a, a heritage church building. But at least you've come one step closer. And the more I look at, for instance, the Federal Social Finance Fund, which I would point to your listeners, you know, fantastic introduction from Stephen Hutter is a couple of years ago now, but it's now coming into existence. The wholesalers are being sought after. The, the call for wholesalers, there's going to be three or four of them, I believe, in Canada. And then the call for the intermediaries, which come next. And we may well be, as our foundation, Trinity Centers Foundation, either on our own or joining with maybe another investment firm we're joining with to, to, be, to pitch ourselves as one of the intermediaries going forward with the social finance fund. The whole point of it is to begin de-risking these investments. So to me, social purpose real estate begins to de-risk because there is a piece of property, as weird as it may be. The social finance fund to me, as it applies, and we actually just wrote a position paper on this for the consultation on disbursement quotas for registered charities, right? Which is obviously have to give away 3.5% of their holdings every year. There may be a call for that to go up to 5%. We've, we've made a call to say, for heaven's sake, please combine the disbursement quota with the social finance fund. And by the way, have a look at social purpose real estate could be really helpful here. And so, you know, the de-risking is happening. The federal government is putting a billion dollars on the table, which is a lot of money when it comes to social impact, especially if it's there to season the sauce in a way that traditional investors can now, you know, find palatable. Very, very excited for, for social purpose real estate. Time for a quick break from our sponsor. The world of personal finance is full of strange and wonderful rules. And honestly, it makes optimizing your finances nearly impossible unless you're a professional. Is it better to use an RRSP or a TFSA? Are you making the most of your employer pension and benefits? What should you do with company stock or options? How does your business fit into your long-term financial plan? These are just a fraction of the questions Canadians struggle with. The confusion can lead to choices that end up costing thousands of dollars a year. Kind Wealth can help you make the most of your money by offering high-quality financial advice. No sales commissions, no hidden fees, no long-term contracts. Just honest advice at a price you can afford. Visit kindwealth.ca to learn more. And now, back to the podcast. 
Yeah, I mean, we I talked about this a little bit with the well, a fair bit with the, the folks from New Market Funds on one of the previous episodes, and and I agree with you. I mean, I think real estate, aside from just having the physical asset, it's also an asset class that everyone understands. They they see the value in property. It's tangible. It's 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 a base of the pyramid. It strikes at, at a base of the pyramid need, you know, for security and for you know having a home and or you know whatever the even if it's not a, you know, you're not building anything residential, it's still people understand it because they you know often either own a home or aspire to own a home, and so I, there's just a lot of and there's just a lot of behavioral benefits to real estate as an asset class because it's not marked to market. You don't see the value of it changing on a day-to-day basis like you do your stock portfolio. So you don't panic when, you know, the prices, you know, drop because you're not seeing, you don't know when the price has gone up and down. You only really check once in a while when you hear about the neighbor selling or another business nearby sold their property. So it's there, you, you, people end up holding it for very long periods of time. And we know that investing is like, you know, your investments are like a bar of soap, right? The more you touch them, the more you try to tinker with them, the smaller they get. So you just buy and hold. And so it's, there's just lots of positive aspects to to real estate as an asset class. And so I agree with you. I think it's a, a prime opportunity for impact investment and, and the collateral being, you know, one of those big ones. And and to the point about, you know, no one wants to repossess the asset in the best of, in any circumstance if they don't have to, but especially a church. I mean, but, but even having that that asset allows it just gives you more of an opportunity to generate income from from it or to borrow against it. There are other op, you have other options besides repossessing the asset where if it's unsecured an unsecured investment you just don't necessarily have those same uh, opportunities. Absolutely and it and it's uh, when you mentioned the very long term investors I mean we, we naturally look to, I think, with anything to do with social impact investing, we look to granting foundations, you know, large family foundations. I think some fantastic, you know, foundations out there that we're we're in we're in touch with, and we're trying to work on this the, this work together with them. There are also, of course, certain types of institutional funds, pension funds, insurance funds, who are accustomed already to very long term property holdings in major Canadian cities, and they're doing that. Because for a long time, even before they called it social impact, they'd say, we want to be invested in our local communities. Well, look, residential property has done very well across the board, despite the pandemic. But commercial property, because of the, the radical draw vacancy, sorry, the radical um, changes in vacancy rates in commercial property, we, as far as I know, we haven't seen a huge drop in rents, which is a whole interesting thing I'm sure somebody else could tell you more about. But what I mean to say is there was a hit. <laughs> And so from a risk point of view, if somebody says, look, here are these churches, they, they, they don't perform as well as residential or commercial. They have a very high social impact if we turn them into community hubs. But we're not going to try to tell you they perform better. We're just going to tell you they perform differently. And for investors who have a big enough portfolio where what they want is diversification of risk, I really believe something. And, and I'll just, I'll say this phrase, and I don't mind if somebody, you know, if somebody gets to this first, then, and they remember that you know, some crazy people trying to figure this out for churches were talking about that. And they do it better than us. I mean, I would just so celebrate that and we'll learn from them. But what, what would it look like, David, to see an, a true ESG REIT, right? A real estate investment trust that owns exclusively, that holds social purpose real estate exclusively. And the return on that investment is primarily based on its ESG impact. The financial return, let's say it holds its value. Let's say it can hold with inflation, which is no small feat these days, Right. I think those are the kinds of questions we would love to 
and, and, and we have to, we have to with people who are rolling up their sleeves, trying to figure this stuff out, which is why I'm so excited about this impact innovations course at Oxford, uh, where we're looking at case studies and very practical case studies. They need to understand the way in which the federal government in Canada and the granting foundations are willing to season and de-risk those investments. But if they don't see that as say, you know, it, it's crazy, isn't it? You think, well, why would somebody else pay to lose on their investment so that I can gain on mine? Well, it doesn't make sense on a conventional investment way, but that is what is on offer in the federal social finance fund. So now go back and let's now read, you know, scratch off the, 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 the drawing board. Let's start again on this. And that in a sense, I mean, one of my biggest hopes of being on the podcast with you, David, is that we could stir up that kind of innovation amongst, amongst our listeners. Yeah. So, I mean, what you're broadly referring to here is the, the field of blended finance and this stuff's happening, you know, all over the, all over the world, not just here in, in Canada, the UK has been a leader here. The U S is doing a lot of great work all, all over Europe. You know, there's a, there's a lot happening Asia as well. And so the idea of, yeah, I mean, can we, can we de-risk this capital? Can we create more favorable terms? Can we reduce the objections that traditional investors have to making impact investments to crowd in more of that capital? And to me, this feels like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills because I look at the investment market and I think like, we're in a very low interest rate environment. I'm constantly in, in you know, presentations and, and talks from investment managers where they're talking about how, you know, yields are, you know, at record lows and there's, you know, just no opportunity to generate any meaningful income from, from bonds, like low risk bonds, government bonds, short term bonds, things like that. And so they're saying, well, we really need to start moving into these more exotic asset classes like hedge funds and private equity and private debt and a whole host of other non kind of traditional non-public markets. And I look at it and say, well, impact investing presents an incredible opportunity. Like you've got a host of private equity and private debt opportunities. And and what's more is a lot of these opportunities are, are being de-risked by governments. You're going to get, they say there's no free lunch in investing aside from diversification. And here's a free lunch that's going to have a limited time frame, where right? Where the governments are going to Blended finance is going to exist as long as it's required to get in investors looking at the making the investment decision from an impact paradigm. Yes. And once that sort of once we hit a tipping point where they no longer need to provide those funds to do that, they won't do it anymore. You know, that's not it served its purpose. We primed the Absolutely. pump, and now everybody's investing and sees the full kind of impact return trade offs and and looks at that in a more healthy way. And then we're going to get, a, well, so you're going to have this kind of defined period of time. And I don't know what that's going to be. Is it going to be 10 years? Is it going to be 20 or 40? I, who knows? But like, why don't we take advantage of these outsized, like you're going to have a free lunch of, of you know, added returns at lower risk than you otherwise should because governments are trying to prime the pump. And I don't know why more investment managers aren't jumping on that opportunity. I, I couldn't agree more. And it, it, you remind me of a funny story. I, when I was at University of Western Ontario at Huron College, uh, which is now Huron University College, um, I remember reading an article by the Fraser Institute, which is, you know, by, by any description, a pr pretty right wing yeah. think, think tank, uh, you know, free market, you know, people with kind of necklaces of Adam Smith's head kind of hanging around their <laughs> neck, that, that, those kind of folks. Sure, yeah. Anyways, I, I read one of their articles and I thought, this is rubbish. I, 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 and I wrote, a, I wrote them a letter. And I said, I think your article is rubbish. I, this, none of this makes sense. Here are the following five things that don't add up in your article that you wrote. 
And they wrote me back and they said, Mr. Singh, you, you have been selected to be part of the Fraser Institute <laughs> National Colloquium on something or other. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was on, I think it was on voucher, uh, voucher systems for schools. And uh, they, they flew me to Vancouver for this. And they're very nice people. And I learned about them. And, 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 and I like having friends on lots of different sides of different divides. But if I was a Fraser Institute person looking for a very conservative approach to government spending, when you say about, you know, it's a free lunch, that's where I'm pointing back to, to say government has to spend on social programs, even in the most conservative way. But the idea of putting some of that stream of funding into the hands of private investors, institutional funds, family foundations, is effectively allowing the market to invest in the social impact on the ground that they believe in. So when, you know, and I'll tell you, you know, I think we've all, those on the ground creating impact and, you know, David, in your own background, you know what it's like when a business person looks at a social issue. They often hammer you in a way that social people, <laughs> including social workers, often they don't, they don't like fighting that rough. <laughs> Business people are happy to fight very rough mm -hmm. and you've got to prove your point and you become sharper. And so from a free market, very right-wing point of view, I would suggest even if the government continues to fund or sweeten the investment, the social impact investment pot, right? So the, the, the pump has been primed and it never needs another government injection. I also believe you. But for those who don't believe you, I would say, even if the federal government, for heaven's sake, if, if they were to put a billion dollars a year into doing this, we could really sharpen and improve and provide capital where it's needed. I'll give you an example. Isn't it crazy? United Way Toronto did, did, did this study. They said, how many of the organizations we fund are actually based out of churches? And they did it. Then the city of Toronto took over this project. And they said, how many, how many charities do the, does the city of Toronto actively fund on a year-on-year -year basis, like a regular multi-year basis, who currently meet in churches? Do you know, we know what the number was? No. Municipality of the city of Toronto. Fascinated to hear. Over 100 organizations. Wow. Now, this makes sense, right? Because you're talking food security, homeless shelters. These are receiving municipal funds, right? Municipalities don't like running those programs themselves. Mm. I sometimes wish they would. Um, but, but let's leave that for another day. Uh, you know, they, they rely on these nonprofits, right, to run this work. But they hadn't dealt with the physical, because they then noticed, they said, well, hold on, all these churches are closing. They're all being sold and turned into condos. So sure, we're getting some more tax revenue, but we just lost the location for the charity we depend on. Hmm. So that's the kind of systemic thing that I, I believe, and we got a call pretty early on in the pandemic from, I'll just say, a very large real estate company associated with one of our very large um, institutional investors in Canada. And they said, you know, Graham, we've heard about what you're doing with these church buildings. And we're, we're sitting here holding our hands in the pandemic thinking what we can't really make a move anywhere. Like what, what are the crazy ideas we should be sitting here thinking of? And, and the, the conversation was kind of in that context. And I think, I think, oh my Lord, what could we do if we get those, those kind of real estate companies with a, a social impact investing lens on not just investing money, but using their skills. These are the people who know how to do this work. They are the best in the industry. You know, I don't suggest I'm the best at anything really, but particularly social purpose real estate. This is really the deeper level opportunity. How do we truly, and now, now imagine the ESG report for that company. By the way, if you're listening, you know who you are. And uh, they told us they thought we were too religious. 
And uh, I said, well, sure. And we've gone away and worked on it. And actually we have a new front end for what we're doing in Quebec, which actually led by one of one of the major culture groups in Quebec. It's not religious at all. And we're preparing to go back to that fund and that company with, with our next opus of this work. But isn't that the opportunity? You know, I, I, I was talking with a, I'm trying to not um, tell tales out of school here, but another friend who actually, this was out on LinkedIn, so somebody could figure out who I'm talking about, but a friend who is, you know, an ESG director for a very large global uh, drinks company. And I said to them, look, um, you know, and, and they had a, they had a to-do list. I think I will tell you who it is because it, this is out in the public domain as well. The company is Diageo and they have a to-do list of all the things Diageo wants to do. Isn't that great? I think it's very good, right? I, I don't, I can't comment on their whole to-do list, mm-hmm. but my comment to my friend who works for Diageo was, you know, when you look at the cost, let's go back to Serrano on the impact weighted accounts. We could talk about the cost of, you know, packaging of alcohol, the cost of the water, but for heaven's sake, at some point, we're going to talk about the cost of the alcoholism, mm-hmm. right? The abuse of alcohol. There's lots of wonderful uses of alcohol. I think I like it a very nice scotch, mm-hmm. um, etc. But what's the cost of alcoholism? Well, now, okay, let's go further. What's the best way to deal with alcoholism? 12-step programs are the single best way of dealing with alcohol addiction. I don't think that I don't think the, the, the research is as strong for drug addiction, for other drug addiction, Interesting. Uh, but certainly 12-step groups. And look at the effectiveness for, you know, look at that. How much does it cost to run a 12-step program, an AA group? Nothing. They're all volunteers. Mm. But where do they meet? Where does an AA group? I'm guessing a lot of times in churches. <laughs> it's a church basement. Yeah. You know how I know? If you have a movie yeah. And in this, in the in the scene where they go to the AA group, where is it based? It's always in the basement of a church. I know this because we rent our churches all the time. So what happens now if we lose our number one effective tool against alcoholism, which meets in church basements? We lose all the church basements. Where do, where do they go? What what would happen if in a, in, in a generation we lost all locations for twelve step groups in North America? I, I know that's a bit extreme, but who, where do we do that? And that to me is the sleeves rolled up work of blue chip North America, blue chip, the world really engaging with ESG. And if I were, if I were a young family uh, delegate to my family office and I was talking to my investment advisors and they came up with their pitter patter about ESG, I would say, let me give you some of these examples my fund advisor. I want to see you come back. And that's where, you know, we were talking a bit uh, before, weren't we, about about the need to update investment policies, especially for granting foundations and family offices, to call for this kind of thing. And I, I would encourage people to say, look, just take a few crazy ideas like this and say, put them in the investment policy. We'd like to see for 10% of this portfolio, we would like to see it involved, invested in direct investments in social impact investing, which meets the objectives of our charity, otherwise known as program-related investments. Well, put it in the policy and make the fund managers do their work. They're very happy to do the work, but those institutions need to set the policies correctly. And its I have to say, you're not going to find that on the stock exchange. Can you get very grand, get very specific about like what exactly does Trinity Center Foundation do? Yes. And- like the, the why, you know, how, and like who of it all. So the foundation has two operating businesses that, that support the objectives of the charity. The objective of the charity is actually to help provide less than market rate spaces for other registered charities. That's our objective as a charity. And that's, and, and that's the example, like, the, sorry, just to tie yeah. back that previous point about, 
AA meetings happening in church basements? Is that because they, yeah. they do it at such a low cost that that's right? That's how you keep the cost of those programs down. So if churches go away, you can find other space to meet for AA meetings, but there's just going to cost you a hell of a lot more. That's right. And and any of course any real estate investor could tell you in a flash what the market rate is in, in that area. So we're talking about in some cases, you know, a ninety five percent discount from the market rate. And that and it's interesting. AA is never a registered charity. It's always a local association. It's an unincorporated association. Yeah. So it's harder to measure, but that's fine. We, we have no problem doing that. But that's our objective is to provide spaces for groups like that. Nonprofits working with refugees, food security, homelessness, uh, youth, education. We want to see all of those groups finding a place in some kind of social purpose real estate that we can have a hand in, in helping. And we're looking first at the church properties, not exclusively. So what we do, we have two businesses within the charity that support that. One is a consultancy for the churches that, you know, let's say a church says, I've got a 50,000 square foot building on the corner of Main and Main, opposite the metro station, uh, you know, and the city hall and the local library. It's the place to be, but we have no idea how to transition our church building from traditional, you know, folks singing hymns on Sunday and sitting in a pew to a vibrant community hub, run everything up to code. Um, we don't know how to make that transition. So we have a consultancy that helps churches do that transition. And, the, and just to pause for a moment there for folks maybe who aren't from the church or don't understand the dynamics, like a lot of these churches sit empty for good portions of the week. You know, I'm sure there's other things going on. It's not that there's nothing happening, but that there is a lot of idle time. Is that is that right? There is. And, and we, we have a thing we call the risk adjusted community tenancy model. Basically what it means is you can't just, you can't just have a homeless shelter because when the homeless shelter loses its funding or the homeless shelter goes sour, which, which happens to homeless shelters, right? There are times yeah. where they're not healthy places. It can tank the building. So the idea is, and you can't have only AA groups that pay 95% discounts. You have to have some that are paying market rate. So have some of the companies that are nearby rent at market rate, have others who are at you know, a 10% discount, a 30% discount. So our objective is, yeah, of course, there are churches that have lots of different groups in them, but often they're not sustainable. The, the rents are not sustainable and the capital improvements have been so underfinanced that you will never see the rents hit above at the point where you could engage any kind of financing. So we're looking at the kind of situation, David, where we're saying, look, if this church needs $5 million of renovation and we could borrow that even at, you know, 2% interest with no payments for 10 years, you know, on a quite friendly bond from a family foundation. And we, and we, we do financing, we arrange financing like that. Even at that kind of rate, the capital needs to be repaid eventually. So the business plan needs to be suitable to be able to possibly do that. So that's one side of our operation. And, Consulting and it, for helping them figure out how to transition. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and that, that, that just to be very practical, that costs the church about a hundred thousand bucks. And we partner with local architects, local accountants, lawyers, planners, key stakeholder engagement folks, placemaking folks. We bring a, a team of consultants together around each project to figure out why should they do what they want to do? How do we help them do that? The other side is, is, is really this kind of work of doing the let's shift the sector. Let's create a sector in terms of social, social purpose real estate out of old church buildings. Let's deal with some of the policy issues like local tax. That's a big one. Now we could have a bit, like you said earlier, you know, I, I could geek out on local tax and how that's an issue on this one. And so that kind of change, um, change networking side of what we do is, is the other side, the kind of think tank side. 
So that's what the foundation does. In terms of the who, I just mentioned some of the consultants who we work with. Um, we sometimes joke and say, if you call 1-800-MY-CHURCH-IS-CLOSED.CA, you know, dial extension one for United Church uh, Property Resource Development, you know, dial extension two for the National Trust for Canada. You know, there are some regular people that people call. And we've kind of gathered all of those people together, whether they call themselves part of our council of advisors, about 50 people on that group, or some of our associated organizations, you know, Canadian Urban Institute, there, there are all kinds. We've said, let's bring everybody together somehow. And those who we put into fee-paying projects, they become our associates. They become real consultants for us. Do you have an example you can talk about of like a specific property where, you know, so we, you know, this is where we started and this is what ended up happening and kind of the financial sure. or the structure that we kind of... Yeah, I'll give you a kind of easiest one and I'll give you a typical one. So uh, one of the easiest ones and really fun was we helped sell a church, West Hill United in Scarborough to the Boys and Girls Club of Scarborough. Hmm. Boys and Girls Club had good financing from United Way. And the church, we created a vendor take back mortgage for the church to lend its money back to the Boys and Girls Club. At, I think it was at 4%. So, and uh, what, what does that mean for everybody listening, the vendor take back mortgage? So it meant that the church assessed a market rate. We helped the church assess a market rate and the building was sold to the youth club. Mm-hmm. The youth club now needs a mortgage yeah. to help and the mortgage came from the church. So, and look at it the other way, the church now has this cash from selling their building. What should they do with it? Well, they should invest it in something like a youth club. So in a sense, it was a win-win. And, and I should mention one key thing. The church got to stay there on Sunday morning, yeah. which is the main thing they wanted. So the youth club got, you know, the youth club has control of the site. They can renovate it. They can bring in their own investment partners. And the church now can focus on all they have to do is worry about what they do on Sundays and the pastoral care for, for their folks. So that was the financial instrument was a sale and vendor take back mortgage in that case. And presumably written in a legal contract somewhere, the the church has some right to continue using that that can't be withdrawn. Is that the case? Yeah. Yeah, I think that was a 20 or 25 year occupancy package with an opportunity to renew beyond that as well. If, if, if I the recall correctly, to, yeah. So they they're protected. Yeah. Like, hey, not three years later, we're going to get removed from this property because That's the, right. the Boys and Girls Club changed their mind about letting us use it on Sundays. That's exactly right. Yeah, no, it's a very solid, permanent lease. One of the things we've modeled is what does the bankruptcy of a denomination look like? That's kind of scary, right? Mm-hmm. Well, now, yeah. a denomination really means a diocese or a region. Most denominations are associated regionally. Okay. So let's say a hundred okay. to one hundred fifty churches. National denominations in Canada don't generally own anything. So the Catholic Church in Canada doesn't mean anything. That's a that's a nonsense concept. Mm. There's a, there's a college of bishops. They have no power over each other. The Pope has power over them all. Sure. The Cardinals have some power and influence, mostly influence, and the property ownership's very complicated in the Catholic Church. But it's mainly by it's mainly organized by the diocese. But then, amazingly, in the case of Canada, actually Rome itself has direct control over quite a few church properties in, mm. in Canada. Yeah. yeah, there are many there are many investment people who kind of, they look at this, they scratch their head, they drive by an empty church and they, and they think, I'm going to call up an archbishop. And I don't care which one, I'm going to find one. Anglican, you know, Catholic, let me just call somebody, Lutheran. And of course, they, they get a hold of an archbishop and the archbishop says, I have nothing to do with property right. at all. All I do is keep the bishops together and keep them cheery. You know, I don't tell the bishops what to do. I, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, but in the case of the Roman Catholic Church, 
you know, we've seen some radical changes going down from hundreds of churches around Quebec City, for instance, down to 11. When you look at that kind of thing and you look at the beauty, I, I, as a Québécois, as a Quebecer, I think the, the quality of church buildings in Quebec is second to none around North America. Incredible quality. The Roman Catholic Church in Quebec is not capable of sustaining those properties. And in fact, if if the other parts of municipal government did what they did with any other owner of a property, they would <coughs> compel the diocese to repair their own buildings. Mm. Let, let, let me just underline this, David. If you owned a toxic waste fact, you know, factory that was contaminated by toxic waste, the municipality could compel you to clean it up. Right. And if you don't, they'll come after you personally. When it comes to not repairing a heritage building, it, there is an effect, if you forgive me, which is something like toxic waste, where the owner has to fix it, but can't afford to. And this, in, in the most extreme version, could in fact lead to bankruptcy of denominations. We're here in the middle of a very powerful season of the truth and reconciliation work in Canada. Churches are implicated in the residential schools tragedies, and monies have been assigned against churches. Churches are scared about those legal ramifications. And I would say being scared and well-intentioned is a place where a lot of churches are. So when you talk about the system, I think, well, how do we deal with that? What what are we going to do about it? You could say, let's just demolish them all. Let's get rid of them, right? Nobody wants to pay for them. You know, it's it's not a totally unreasonable suggestion, but it's not one that I sign up for. It'd be an awful shame. I think even the average Canadian would say, not even the average, but I mean, any Canadian where we know nothing about their faith would still look at that and say, we got to do better than that. And right now we don't have any instruments to make that happen. We call this, I've actually coined this phrase um, of calling this partial temporary deconsecration. So you're taking a space and saying, you know, for for a Protestant, let's call it a non-denominational church that meets out in a suburban, you know, they got a big parking lot and they meet. It kind of looks like a cinema or like a theater where they meet. They don't care about the, the, the any of that imagery. They, they're sitting in seats that are otherwise sold to a cinema. It's, it's actually a movie theater seat that you're sitting in. They don't really have communion all that often. Everything's black with some white lights and that's it. That's quite different for a Catholic church. A Catholic church will feel that that's a sacred space. And to take out the pews even, you're beginning to lower the sacred nature of the space. There's a bishop listening, my Catholic bishop brothers, you know, please, for heaven's sake, this needs some deep thinking because within the Catholic Church, you have movements like the Curcio movement and the Carmelite movement and the monastic movements, for heaven's sake, you know, Franciscans and, uh, you know, all, all kinds of monastic groups who, for the length of the Catholic Church's history, have not required buildings. And I think the Catholic Church is, in fact, waking up from inside itself to realize that actually, you might run an alpha course or something like that in a restaurant, and it's actually more effective than when you run it in the church. So I don't think we should get rid of all sacred spaces. That's not what I'm saying. But we can't have as many as we have now. We should have some that are very beautiful cathedral-esque places that are 100% dedicated for that. But then others, I call them the workhorse buildings, You know, in a local community where there's a great need. For heaven's sake, that's deep within Catholic theology. But this is a big, it's something I write, up, I write about a lot on the other side of uh, life. And, and it, you know, you know, the church, I believe the churches, including the Catholic, Lutheran, Anglican, you know, the, the liturgical churches, you know, where people are wearing robes and there's candles and communion every day, that kind of church. 
they are getting it and they're going it, to, it's going to happen. Can I ask you, you, you mentioned earlier about placemaking. I think yeah. that's such a beautiful idea. I'm glad that it is, it's something that I hadn't really appreciated for a long time. The value of, of needing in a local place and bringing people yes. together uh, physically. And I, I think I first started to really, maybe not, but yeah, the first memory I have of it really is kind of thinking about it more meaningfully, it sort of rocked me out of my complacency was Winners Take All. I've talked about that book a lot on this podcast and, you know, Anand uh, Giridas uh, talks, the author talks about the, this idea of being a global citizen and, oh, I'm not, I don't belong, you know, to any, you know, one country or community. I'm a citizen of the earth and a globe. And, you know, that's in some ways beautiful, but in another way is, well, if you're a citizen of, you know, the globe, then you're a citizen of nowhere. You know, you don't belong to any community and, you know, there is real value in being a part of a physical place and being in community with one another. And so can you maybe just talk about, because this, this strikes yeah. what you're doing strikes at the heart of placemaking and, yeah. and place-based impact investing is, is on the rise now. And, and you, there's a growing appreciation for, for that. Can you talk about what it means to yeah. you and kind of absolutely, your absolutely. And it's, uh, I love your lead up to that. And it, it made me think of, I, 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 I used my phone through the pandemic so extensively. I think it just gave up the other day. I got to have a new phone and I was, I was cleaning up my air Canada app and it, or my Apple wallet or something. And it, it said, how many of these old flight boarding passes yeah, do you yeah. want to clear out? And I was like 75 boarding pass. Oh I thought, goodness. I thought, when did those kind of looked at the day? I thought, was I really flying to all those places, seeing all those people? And I look at it now and I realize actually meeting with older congregations with a big old building and they don't know what to do, but they realize they are inheritors of place. They own that place, which is the church in the middle of the town that you know you're in the middle of the town because of that steeple. Those folks, by the way, I find it's almost easier to connect with them on Zoom, right? Not at 7 p.m. in their church basement where it's really cold and styrofoam cups and all that, but from the comfort of their home. And I realized from my work, I used to think flying to see people was really what, you know, said, I love you. And actually, I realized now there's other ways of saying I love you and I care for you and I, we want to help. And it's helped me rediscover what it means for me to be living locally in my local community here. I am also, as, as we talked about, I'm a local church minister. But it's helped me realize, I, I think the global citizen side of things, and you know, we've certainly done our share of that, that kind of living, it's not good for the planet. It's not really good for our families, I don't think. Not super good for our kids. And we've got to learn how to do it again. What I would argue with old church buildings is that they are what we would call existing social capital, right? Like an, like an old railway line laid down. You think, actually, we might want to use that railway line to build a new tram. Well, it's existing social capital, existing social infrastructure, and we could call it existing placemaking infrastructure. Yeah. And, you know, that to me is an opportunity that when you have that kind of early leg up, and I, I would say we, we, one of the first stages in terms of the how of what we do as a foundation, the first stage we always engage in, we call it pews out, lights in. You take an old church, take out the pews, put in some lights, and you'd be amazed how many people flood into that place. You know what I'm talking about, the lights on tripods. You put those up and theater people will take them and they will do things with them that all of a sudden you're like, this place looks incredible. you know. And, and people come to the gardens. They find ways to come. They inhabit the space. And so I know, there, you know there's intentional placemaking, but I would argue there's also a natural placemaking that comes through over time. And we are stewards 
of that kind of placemaking. I remember sitting with in, in, a, in the back of a room where local investment advisors were talking to their national product development teams. And I remember one of the bank, one of the big banks was, all the big banks represented there, but one of them saying, when our clients come in asking for social impact investment, you know, when, you know, the, the investment advisor says you should have 5% of your portfolio involved in, in, in impact invest or whatever it is they tell them. And the, the customer or the client comes back and says, the investor comes back and says, okay, show me what you got. Uh, Terry Fox bond. Uh, okay. That sounds good. I have no idea what the performance of the bond is, but I think Terry Fox foundation is pretty cool. So that's good. That'll do right now. Keep going down the list. How about the, you know, Canadian National Homelessness Real Estate Fund that owns a bunch of homeless shelters? That doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. How about, you know, a fund that deals with, purely deals with food security? I don't think that exists yet. Mm -hmm. And if it did exist, actually those same investors would want to invest in the local, you know, Hamilton, Ottawa, Montreal chapter of that. So social impact investing has a locale, um, scalability challenge. And I, man, I'm excited for that. To your point um, earlier, just to kind of circle back and, and maybe put a f fine point on, the, I think the message there is, you know, if you, you were kind of making an appeal to, you know, folks who are sitting in the position of managing assets, whether it's a foundation or corporate or whatever those assets are, and you're looking at the investment policy statements and you're responsible for, yeah. for essentially defining them so that investment policy statement are the things that tell you what you can and can't invest in and how you should be managing the assets. It provides the guardrails for how, how the assets should be managed. And whether you're managing it yourself or you're, you're giving that investment policy statement to an investment manager, it's guiding how the investments are made on behalf of your organization. This The point here is that you... You don't have to wait if you, if, especially if you're in an organization of any meaningful size. You don't have to wait for these investments to be created, right? Like you said it, you know, pre, prior to starting the recording, is you go out there and, and and ask for the type of investment you want to see, and yeah. and it'll get created. This yeah. is the beauty of being on the the vanguard of a an emerging industry or paradigm shift in impact investing is that. You know, we're all just figuring this out. And so be one of those leaders, help us figure it out and create the investment that you want to see in, in, in the world. If there was a certain type of person listening, what type of sort of call to action do you have? Or what, what types of things do you, do you need to move your work forward? What types of people, organizations, individuals do you want to hear from? So I would love to hear from the kind of people who are rolling up their sleeves right now in a large institutional fund or a family foundation, they are trying to create the kind of impact, particularly social impact in investment instruments that they need to meet their own organization's objectives. They've got their sleeves rolled up. I mentioned a few folks that we're already in conversation with. I mentioned the uh, course at Oxford that I'm going to be part of, and I'm really looking forward to doing some more designing of uh, fund type instruments over you know 2022 and would love to do that with folks who are who are also trying to do that. So would love to meet you, love to connect on this. Some of you have already been reaching out. Actually, the Oxford course has led to a very interesting conversation, particularly through LinkedIn. And so please, that's one group. Another group are those, we, you mentioned them a few times, David, those who are reviewing the investment policies, either of an institutional fund or of a, of a foundation, where you want to know what are the technical pieces of what would social impact, pardon me, social purpose real estate 
investment look like? What would an investment policy look like? If you're in that design stage of the investment policy, that'd be great to reach out as well. I'm going to make sure I'll link to the uh, Trinity Centers Foundation website. I'll link to your LinkedIn on the show notes. Do you, last, just quick question, because yeah. you've been taking a lot of your time so far. It's a joy. Well, thank you. Point we were making earlier before we were recording this discussion you know, there's this, there's a whole spectrum of, of, I think the, this idea of like spending money versus investing as two disparate activities is, is, is flawed. They are a single spectrum and the single spectrum, you know, ranges from, you know, zero, you know, hundred percent financial loss when you spend money or you donate or give it away without any expectation of getting anything back from it to, you know, to an investment, a traditional investment where you expect a market rate, rate, rate of return. And people kind of, it's either going to be a, an expense or it's going to be an investment and I need to maximize my return. Hmm. And then we ignore the entire middle end of the spectrum where like, yeah. what about an investment that gives you back 80% of your capital, not even a return. You're just going to get back 80% of what you invested, but it's going to have a massive impact or it's going to return 5%, something well below market, but it's going to have a you know positive impact. I'm wondering about like, Corp, you know, corporate social responsibility budget. So instead of spending this money, we're going to take some of it and, and make an investment with it that's going to generate, sure, less than market rate return. So that's why, you know, it's not going to be our, you know, investment arm that's doing it because it's not the types of returns they need and it's not big enough. We can't scale it. But from the corporate social responsibility, you know, if we just think about it as, yeah, this is not going to be an expense, this is going to be an investment that has this positive impact. And we can take some of those returns and add it to our CSR budget. Is this a, like, is this a conversation? Yes. Do you think that's an opportunity? So, so I'm very excited about this question. And let's, let's, let me say this. If, if you or I were traditional fund development people working for a financial institution like a bank, we probably wouldn't want to answer this question in the open market. Cause we'd say, this is, this is going to be our secret sauce. This is going to be our IP that really makes this thing happen. But that's not how we work in the social sector. We try to give away mm -hmm. everything we can. And I would yeah. say, uh, fund developer, if you take what we're about to say and, you know, remember us when you're famous, um, <laughs> because actually I think where they should be taking the money from is, you know, imagine a bank launches the, you know, the Canadian Balanced Community Fund, which has all kinds of traditional uh, securities in it, as well as some kind of investment that maybe is expecting that 80%, they're going to receive back 80% of their capital. So a negative rate of return on that. They can easily cover losses within a fund like that or lower performing elements of the fund. They know how to do that all the time. But if they sell that and they say, this fund also includes this kind of direct investment in social impact, they can blend it from within the fund. Mm. That's one answer. The other answer is I'm going to name a few banks and I because I know they won't sue me for saying it, but I, I will name Van City Community Investment Bank. Van City as an organization, very much out there. They spend a yeah. lot of their time leading, you know. And kudos to those guys. I think a lot of the cooperative banks, exciting, you know, what they have. I mean, the cooperative banking movement should be doing this, and they used to do it, and some of them will do it again, right? But we need to call out the greatness. So go community, you know, <laughs> go cooperative banks. We, yeah. we, we love you. Yeah. Um, our RBC is a bank we've done a lot of talking with, and I'm encouraged by what they're doing. CIBC, we've had some very good conversations with them. I know there are people in those banks doing great things, and they're trying to do it. But hear this. If a foundation said, we're going to accept a negative rate of return on this investment. Let's say we want to build a community uh, hub. And if you, if you community hub reach the following number of Indigenous people, and young people and your LGBTQ lenses and your black lenses are all good. We will 
actually allow you to return a negative rate of return to us. And it'll be really a social impact. It could be a bond, it, you know, but there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a return which reduces based on the impact. We still have those around. Great, great concepts. I'd love to see more of them. That foundation will have no problem doing that internally in linking their granting in the future, right, to their investing both now and in the future. So a lot of that time, like let's say, for instance, we structured it as a 10-year bond with a 4% rate of return that they record every year. They show that annually for the next 10 years, but there's no payments for 10 years. So in 10 years is when the rubber hits the road and when they need to fund the fact that they didn't get 4%, they got 0% or 2%. They need to fund that from the granting side of their operation. Well, they need to budget and make sure they know that they are going to be making that grant in year 10, right? They have no problem doing that. A bank doing that from its CSR budget to its own fund, I think there are some regulatory challenges with doing that to their own fund. However, they could be funding along with the the Federal Social Finance Fund and other investors, especially if they're not direct beneficiaries of their own gift that way. One of the banks I'm most excited about, and if you're listening, folks, but Desjardins. Desjardins was started. You know where it was? Do you know the history of the bank? I think I did it one time and I've forgotten. It it has a very interesting history. Desjardins was started out of church basements with farmers' wives counting counting the money of the harvest. Oh, wow. The case case concept, which Desjardins has their local branches. By the way, almost all the Desjardins branches are located right next to the village church Mm. because they grew out of the church basement and they then built their own premises. But for heaven's sake, if there's anywhere where this could start is a cooperative bank like Desjardins, whose history, you guys came from the church basements. So we need your help (laughs) and you need to be brave. And Desjardins can more effectively go to what we call Quebec Inc. here, you know, which includes the case de Depot, the Fonds des Travailleurs Québécois, you know, Québécois, these big Quebec organizations for whom the local village church is a major institution. And I really believe we're, we're here very intentionally in Quebec my wife and I, mm. um, we're a bilingual family. We love Quebec on the fièrement québécois. And uh, I also believe the revolution in how we see this happen is going to start from this beautiful province. Mm. Well, that sounds like a good note to, uh, to part on here. I'll let you get back to your day, but Graham, it's, <laughs> this is just a fascinating conversation. It's really unique, interesting. So it kind of checks all the boxes of things I love to talk about on this on this podcast. And you're just such a great ambassador for for what you're doing. So thank you very much for well, being the kind of trailblazer and, and and taking action on this stuff. God bless you, brother. Take care. All the best. Bye-bye. We'll chat soon. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.